At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Built for More, Church Beyond the Weekend, where we will see what the Psalms teaches us about how life is enriched when we live and serve in community with our church family. I love you guys. I am so, so grateful for you. We are in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, with this sermon, we finish our series in Romans, and I conclude my pastoral assignment from God to this precious body of followers of Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, in this broken world, we at times catch glimpses of the sweetness of fellowship that the blood of Christ purchased for us. The last six years have been just that for me and my family through this precious congregation. Two of my children were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit right here. So Woodside Royal Oak will forever be a part of our story and I thank you for it. I praise you for it, God. And I want to ask you, our Lord, that the love of Jesus, a love I labored to bring out from the pages of scripture, but only with faltering lips, only with a dull mind, only with a heart barely soaked in your lavish grace. Father, that love, that invincible love of the Savior, I pray, would continue to flood this congregation. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this church would capture and embody the things our glorious text for today from Romans 8 holds out for our amazement. Lord, as you took Israel out of Egypt by a mighty hand and led them through the desert all the way to the land of promise, continue taking slaves to sin out of this world, bringing them into this faith family and leading them all together to the new earth where your love and rule triumphs over all things. Let nothing be sweeter, stronger, wiser, healthier, or more life-giving to them than the supreme worth of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Romans 8, verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The outpouring of affection from you to me and my family over the last few weeks when we've been saying our goodbyes has been overwhelming, so humbling. 
Many of you have expressed the way the preaching ministry of this church has been transformative for you in your understanding of God, of your own life, and of the world, and I praise God for that. But I have to say that as much as I've helped you, you've helped us, my family. This congregation has been transformative for our family in more ways than I can share, but I'll try. You are godly. Godly means given to the things of God with a posture of heart and mind that seeks first to please God. Now, when I was first getting to know you, having no prior relationship with Michiganders, I thought it was just a Midwest thing. They're like, oh, Midwest people, Michigan people are just salt of the earth people. But then COVID hit, and a lot of people from the Midwest, including some from our even Woodside campuses, began behaving in less than ideal ways. But you didn't. You continue trusting and working for unity and prioritizing the body of Christ. And so my, my respect for you grew. And I realized, nope, it's not a Midwest thing. It's a gospel thing. It matters to them how they represent Jesus. Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise. And so being around you and with you has made our family wiser, more tender, more on fire for Jesus. But something that's had an even deeper impact on me is that you respond to God's word. You respond to God's word. And I don't just mean like you nod your head and say, oh, wow, that was a good sermon. No, I mean the word of God actually changes you. Last week after the last service, I was talking to a young lady never seen her before. Uh, and she said, I've only been coming here for like three months, but this series in Romans has been amazing. And you know how Paul says that we're not slaves to sin anymore, but we're slaves to righteousness. She said, this has been helping me so much just in my daily life. That's what I mean. You respond to God's word. When you're in leadership, especially in church leadership, there are all kinds of ways that you can try to get people to do things. Ways of persuasion that are not God's appointed means for growth. And there are people out there who are teaching and selling hacks, techniques, tactics to grow your church. And many pastors go for those things. But I had to wrestle intensely with the Lord to protect me from that, to allow me to risk all my chips all of them on his word and only on his word. But it's hard to tell Sunday by Sunday what that word is doing. But as I look back on six years of word ministry here, I stand amazed. I stand amazed at how this word of God has given new birth to many of you and reshaped your thinking and brought fire to your heart and replaced greed with generosity eroticism with sexual purity, and a low view of the church with God's kingdom comes first. And so I want you to know that as a pastor, your obedience, your responsiveness to God's word has intensified my belief in the power of this word, and that's how you're sending me out. One more thing. You treasure God's family on mission. You know, a parting gift that I feel the Lord gave me is that this congregation now has more people in live groups than on Sunday. I just learned this a few weeks ago. And I love that because what it means is that the majority of people in this congregation are meaningfully and relationally connected to each other beyond Sunday. It means that your worship here is active, not passive. 
It means that you're learning to love each other in the messy spaces of day-to-day life. And life is messy, right? And it means that you now have a network of Christ followers where you can bring your friends and family who do not yet know Jesus. I've said many times that you can't really tangibly love a thousand people, but you can love ten. That's the power of a life group. And so if you're here and you're not in one, let me encourage you to join one. But these are some, just some of the ways that the love of Jesus in you has catapulted into new heights my family's love for him. And I love that that is precisely the word that scripture has for us today as I wrap up my ministry from this pulpit. We conquer by the God who loves us. We conquer by the God who loves us. This passage is all about God's love for us, that invincible, inseparable, incomprehensible, and eternal love. We conquer by the God who loves us. And so we're going to ask three of the questions that Paul asks in this text. First, who can be against us? Who can be against us? No one. Look at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As we said before, many call chapter 8 the brightest side of the diamond that is the letter to the Romans. So as Paul comes to the end of this sustained argument that he's been making from chapters 5 to 8, the territory that we traveled in the last 12 weeks, he asks an important question. What then shall we say to these things? It's a great question because you and I tend to draw the wrong conclusions from the evidence. I've met medical doctors who after all their training, over a decade of training, not counting high school and elementary, that doesn't even count. They come to the end of that training and they draw the wrong conclusions from the evidence of their lives. Many of them are depressed and they feel like their lives are meaningless. And I'm like, hold on. You have had training that less than 1% of the world has access to or the ability to complete. You're now in a position to do so much good for so many people. It's not about the houses and cars and vacations you can give yourself. It's about how much good, how much pain and suffering you can relieve from thousands of your fellow humans. What do you mean you're depressed? Then I've also met medical doctors who draw the wrong conclusions from the evidence in the opposite direction. Because of their great skill and learning, they feel like the world should revolve around them. Now, by the way, these extreme or different reactions or responses can be found in any field and walk of life. In fact, if you look at your life carefully, you will see that you have drawn the wrong conclusions for your life out of the evidence. And that's precisely what Paul does not want us to do, reach faulty conclusions. Well, after he's labored to explain the gospel to us and many of its implications for our lives. And so he asks, what then shall we say to these things, to all of the stuff that we've been saying? What should we say? And what he says next is the greatest thing that you could hear in all of your life. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it comes to us as a question because it's the way that Paul is building momentum in the last nine verses of this chapter. But the statement is, God is for us. 
God is for us. There is no if about it. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. No one. Now, he doesn't mean that you're not going to have people against you. I'm sure that even right now, you can think of an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or former boss or parent or parent figure who most definitely was against you. What he means, though, is that they cannot credibly mount an attack against you. They cannot have final victory over your life. Here's why. Because if your life were a boxing match, you wouldn't have that enemy of yours in one corner and in the other, you, poor little you. That's not the match. The match is between that enemy of yours and God. And guess who wins that match every time? Say it. Exactly. And so now Paul drills down. He doubles down on that very thought to show us that God indeed is for us. Look at verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. And here's what Paul is saying. If God has done the greater thing, not sparing his own precious son, but giving him up for us all, will he not now do the lesser thing of giving you along with him all things? Now, I pray that the penny drops for you. Because I remember when this verse and verses like it finally anchored my flighty soul. Prior to this time, I would have described my life this way. My life matters because of X. I know that I am loved because of X. I have hope for the future because of X. So, for example, my life matters because my job is going well. I know I'm loved because my job is going well. I have hope for my future because my job is going well. Or my life matters because a great woman loves me. I know I'm loved because a great woman loves me. I've hoped for the future because a great woman loves me. Do you see what's wrong with that thinking? What if my job stops going well? What if that great woman stops loving me or dies? But then once Romans 8:32 and verses like it began to anchor my flighty soul, here's how I answered those same statements. My life matters. Because God gave up his son for me. I know I'm loved because God gave up his son for me. I have hope for the future because God gave up his son for me. Do you see the difference? And do you see why we know that the future of Woodside Royal Oak is fixed, secure, unstoppable? Why? Because God gave up his son for us. Come on, I want you to say it. Why do we know that the future of Woodside Royal Oak is secure? Because God gave up his son for us. That's right. And I want you to think about this. Because when we obsess, when we get fixated with an unfulfilled desire, and we all have them, what we're doing is we're devaluing 
the worth of Christ. What we're saying is, God, your son would be so meaningful to me if my job was going well. If that partner I want came into my life. Oh, I hope the penny drops. So it's the first thing. Who can be against us? No one. Second, who will bring a charge against us? No one. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, so Paul now goes from what God has done in the past to what God is going to do in the future in light of the present. Past, future, and present. So what God did in the past was he gave up his son for us. What God's going to do in the future day of judgment is that no charge or no condemnation is going to stick for God's elect in light of justification by faith in the present. Now, the language is legal. So picture the heavenly courtroom. And Paul asks, who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God's chosen people. Now, where do these charges come from? Well, as we've been learning in the last number of weeks, we've learned that we are lawbreakers, that we break God's law. But it's not just that we break God's law. God's law itself arouses our sinful desires. And if that's a new concept for you, listen to some of the previous messages. But we are lawbreakers. We break God's law. We break all kinds of laws. You know, a couple of weeks ago, a policeman came to our door in our house, and I wasn't there, but I heard this story as related to me by my teenage children. And so it was the middle of the day, and they had just come home from school, and, uh, and so a policeman comes to the door, and, and, uh, and, and of course, when that happens, you panic. I mean, it's your house, but you panic. You know, last year, a policeman, two of them actually, came to our door, and I answered. I'm a grown man. It's my home. I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. I panicked, you know. They asked me the name of my dog. I couldn't remember. I was like, ah, or, or like the, the breed, and my wife's like, it's a golden doodle. Like, oh, yeah, sir, it's a golden doodle, you know. Um, and so they panicked, and so the policeman asked them, uh, are your parents home? And they're like, uh, no, because we weren't. And he says, well, did you know that you have a fire going on in the backyard? And they were like, uh, no. And so they look, and sure enough, there's like this fire in the backyard. And they're like, hmm. And so he asks, you know, he keeps talking. He was like, do you know who did that? And they're like, mm, no. So he says, well, we got a phone call that there was a man back there, you know, burning stuff, brush and things. And so they're like totally confused. And so he keeps asking them, he's like, so they start thinking, it's like, oh, maybe it's, you know, we'll call him Peter. Because, you know, there's someone that we asked to come and help us get the house ready to sell and all of that. So they're like, maybe Peter. Um, and they're like, well, do you, the policeman is like, do you know Peter? And they're like, yeah, well, he's not supposed to be doing that. He's like, okay, we'll tell him. You know, but, but apparently we broke a law. We didn't even know we had broken, but we break laws. You break laws all the time and you break God's law all the time. We allow sin to rule over our lives and the wages of sin, scripture tells us, is death. So our debt of, of, of sin to God is this huge mountain. So our debt to God is neither small nor minor. So those are the charges that Paul is talking about when he says, but when he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Then he says, look at what he says. It is God who justifies. That's the answer. It is God who justifies. So think about this. 
Your debt as a lawbreaker is to God, but God himself is the one who sent his son as the payment for our sins, for your sins. So that, that mountain of debt that you had toward God, once you put your faith in Christ, it's gone because he paid for it. You're cleared and that verdict will hold on the day of judgment. So who can bring a charge against us? No one. Then in verse 34, Paul asks a similar question, but now the emphasis is on what Christ has done on our behalf. And so he says, who is to condemn? And the answer comes in four statements about the work of Christ on our behalf. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. That's why we sang songs about this. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he's now, right now, he's interceding for us in heaven on our behalf. And so just think about this, that Jesus is constantly giving warrant in heaven that we are God's beloved children, that our acceptance is legitimate, it's fitting that everything that needed to be done for our acquittal has been done. You see, Paul wants us to breathe easy, breathe easy in life. He wants us to know that there are no skeletons in the closet that are going to come out and take us down on the day that we stand face to face with God. It's a wonderful thing. And I want you to think about it because for you, listen to this, for you to become guilty before God, all over again, someone said, Christ Jesus himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven, pulled down from his throne, and thrown back in Joseph's tomb. There is not a chance in hell that that's happening. That's how safe you are. So who can bring a charge against us? No one. And finally, who shall separate us from Christ's love? Who shall separate us from Christ's love? No one and nothing. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, I love that no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, so God is for us, and Jesus is in heaven making noise on our behalf. But you may object and say, well, that's all, that sounds great and everything, but what about real life problems? You know, maybe Paul just got too lofty in his theological reflection and forgot that we mere humans down here have to deal with all kinds of pressures and shattered dreams. Uh-uh. No. Paul can never be accused of disconnecting the practical from the ideal. He had first-hand knowledge. You know this from reading Acts or the, his many letters. He had first-hand knowledge with tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. Just think of nakedness in the winter in those prison cells. Danger or sword. 
And so he asks, should any of these things, and he had faced them all, should any of these things separate us from the love of God? And before he gives his his answer, he pauses. He pauses to acknowledge the reality, not only in his own life, but also in the lives of God's people throughout history, that suffering and victory go together. Suffering and victory go together in Christ's life, in our lives. And so in verse 36, he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That verse comes from Psalm 44. And in context, God's people were lamenting the fact that their faithfulness to God was resulting in their being killed. For your sake here means God's sake. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. I mean, just think. Think through the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. The many people who were killed, who suffered for God's sake. Joseph in Egypt suffered for God's sake. Job suffered for God's sake. Mary, the mother of Jesus, suffered for God's sake. Stephen, who was stoned in Acts 7, suffered for God's sake. Paul suffered great affliction during his life and died for the gospel. And countless Christians throughout history down to this day have suffered, have died in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia. And even we in the West, we have not been killed for our faith. Not yet. Not now. But we do suffer affliction for God's sake. When you hold on, listen to me, when you hold on to your sexual purity, when you drive a lesser car so you can give to the mission of God, when you absorb the wounds that someone inflicts on you and forgive. We could be going down a list. But those afflictions, what Paul asks is, can any of these afflictions separate us from the love of God? In verse 37, he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I love that verse and I love that verb. It's a verb in Greek. In our English translation, it comes through as a noun. We are more than conquerors, and I love that translation, but it's a verb. You know, the, the verb is super conquer. We super conquer. We exceedingly conquer through him who loved us. Conquer, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Conquering wasn't enough for Paul. So he takes the, the verb conquer, and he adds a prefix to it, super. He says, We super conquer through him who loved us just to augment our victory, to supersize our victory. Remember some of you in the 90s when McDonald's started supersizing your fries and soft drinks? Some of you remember this, and they would ask you, you know, you would order fries, and they're like, do you want to supersize that? And you're like, supersize? Yeah. Right? It sounded so good. I'm not saying they should have done that, given all the diabetes in our country and everything, but it just sounded good. You're like, I don't want a regular size. I want a super size. That's what Paul, Paul is saying, we don't just conquer. We super conquer through him who loved us. And notice that he didn't say, in spite of these things, we are more than conquerors. That's not what he says. What does he say? In all these things, We are more than conquerors. Just as the cross of Christ became the fountain of life for all humanity, so also our sufferings for God's sake are used of God to spread the aroma of Christ. Suffering and victory go together 
They go together. They were so for Christ. They are so for us. And don't miss the last part of verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen to me. We don't conquer by willpower or our smarts or high morality or great programs or pastors and preachers. or our generous giving, or anything else we do, we conquer by the God who loved us. The one who sustains us in all of life with all the adversity that life will throw at you is Jesus Christ, here described as the one who loved us. Don't you love that? And then Paul brings his whole thing to a grand finale. The last four chapters are really the whole of the letter up until this point with these words in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not COVID, not Satan or demons, not your own choices or history, not anything in the time and space continuum, nothing else in all of creation can separate you from your God. Paul says, I am sure of it. After many years, much tribulation, many battles, much distress, Paul knew in his soul that nothing and all kinds of things had been thrown at him. Nothing could separate him from the love of God. Are you sure? If not, how are you gonna get there? Are you happy just to drift, to live in doubt, to live like one of the thousands or millions of American Christians who live for comfort, unwilling to suffer for the cause of Christ? Listen to me, your faith will be tested for the rest of your life so that you know, am I just an American Christian or a legit Christian? And in this transition, let your faith cost you something. Don't just sit back and say, well, I'm gonna wait and see. I'm just gonna wait and see. No, press in and give. Press in and go. Press in and gain a crown of righteousness. Is your shield of faith strong enough to stop the arrows of tribulation and persecution and illness and sexual temptation and money hunger and aging and danger and sword? You wanna be able to answer with the apostle Paul, I am sure. That no one and nothing, and I mean nothing in all creation, can separate me from the love of my God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so let's pause for a second and if, let's praise our God for his invincible love. Can we, if you have experienced Christ to make you more than a conqueror, praise him with all your being, all of your life. So dear church, let me leave you with three words. God is for you. That's one of the words you're like, oh, that's four words. No. <laughs> that is one of the words. God is for you. Listen to me. He loves you. He loves you so deeply. He gave up his precious son for you. When you sin and rebel against him, God is no less for you. You know, when a child 
is in pain, that parent's compassion goes out for that child all the more. And nothing brings greater pain into your life than sin. So when you're in sin, in pain, God comes to you all the nearer to pull you out, to lift you up, to press you against his heart. So if you belong to Jesus, God is for you, and you can do anything to stop him. That's the first thing. Second, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. I see Christians that get so afraid, the condition of our world, the news cycle that you listen to incessantly, I don't know why, the political climate in our nation, the viruses of which COVID is but a mild one, the choices our children make. It's as if there were all these different things in creation that could spell disaster for us. Listen, those kind of things and worse ones will always continue to come. But nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of your God. How do you know? Because he gave up his son for you out of the great love with which he loved you. So make a decision today that instead of fear, joy, the joy of the Lord will flood your heart and flow through you. But you need to put down your phone. You need to put down your phone and open your Bible. You need to put down your phone and open your Bible so that you can saturate yourself. Saturate yourself with the promises of God's love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So I want to ask the three questions that we asked, that Paul asks in this text, and I want you to answer them. They're going to be highlighted and read for you on the screen, but I want you to shout them out like you mean it. Here we go. Who can be against us? No one. Oh, you can do better than that. Who can be against us? No one. Who will bring a charge against us? Who shall separate us from Christ's love? No one. And nothing. That's right. No one and nothing. Lastly, live to tell the story of the victory of God's love. Live to tell the story. Make a decision that for the rest of your life, you're going to live and your children are going to live to tell the story of the victory of God's love. Two weeks ago, on November 14th, our whole family was driving to Oak Point for the first time on a Sunday. The children had never, never been there. I had never been there on a Sunday. So we're driving west on 696. It was about 7.20 in the morning. And everything was so quiet. So we're in the car. And we started praying. And we're just, everyone prayed. And we started just remembering and praising God for all, so many of the blessings that he has brought through and to this church family in the last six years. And so we're just thanking him for so many people. And as we're praying, one of the families we, we thanked him for and praised him for was Jake and Jenna Jakubik and little Ruthie and Jude. Jake and Jenna came into our church four years ago, and they gave their lives to Christ. And since then, you know, they, they came, became a part of our life group. And since then, they have grown by leaps and bounds. It's been amazing to watch. And now as we're moving on, they're taking over the leadership of the life group. And so we're praying about this. And as we're praying about them, we remember where Jake was five years ago. And we just started 
talking about some of the things that, that Jake's life used to be about. The language he used, the things he was doing, so far from God. God did not figure at all in his life. Then God called him and transformed him. And now he's leading his precious family and parts of our church family in the love of Jesus. And as we remembered all of that, I said in my prayer, Lord, this is why. This is why you are taking us to Oak Point. Because there are men like Jake and women who do not yet know the name of Jesus. But you're going to bring them. And they're going to lead their families and parts of the church family in the love of Jesus. Church. The gospel is unstoppable. Live to tell the story of the victory of God's love. We conquer. We super conquer by the God who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. It is so humbling For me to have been able, privileged to call myself a member, a Christian in the body of believers that is called Woodside Royal Oak. It's been an honor to call myself a pastor to this flock. Not the pastor, a pastor. One among many that came before me, one among many who will come after me, and one among the many that I serve alongside with even now. And so thank you, Lord, for that privilege. And I pray, dear God, that in this congregation, the name of Jesus always be esteemed as of matchless worth because he is worthy of all honor and power and glory and wisdom and praise and blessing it is in his name that we pray amen thank you for joining us as we study god's word together we would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.